You're listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. On today's show, we've got Bob Kramer, who's kind of like the Yoda of knife making here in the United States. He sat down with me and Brad Leone, a test kitchen manager here at VA. And then we hop on the phone with our new wine columnist, Marissa A. Ross. And Marissa talked to me about how she went from being a wannabe stand-up comic to now the author of our new unfiltered wine column. She's a hell of a writer, knows an astounding amount about wine, and we talked about everything from day drinking to sulfites. But first up, let's check in with Bob Kramer. All right, Knife Guys, Brad Leone and Bob Kramer. Hey, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I just want to set the scene here um because i thought i would be in this very sort of game of thrones conversation and like we've got brad over here and he literally is wearing like you got what like what is this, that leather apron you have oh it's my favorite one it's a top quality uh blunt roll makes it it's just an all leather apron full one around the neck wrap around the whole you got a little slot for your like your yeah i mean i your, got my your, little your thermometer and your pen and tool everything pupuses and my you know you got to have your marker and uh it's been it's my favorite apron can't, can't beat it it's it, leather too you know it's gonna last for quite some time you got some sort of like pacific northwest fleece cap on you got the beard you <laughs> yeah. got the denim shirt <laughs> i get the french fisherman a lot you know and, <laughs> but uh i'm a big fan of the gubellini you know that's what it's called that's yeah i believe so <laughs> Gubellini. So, so yeah, so you you look like someone who forges knives, which you do. I look over here at Bob, and I was like, <laughs> you look like Daniel Liebskin or something. You're like you're like an architect with like the square glasses Perfect. and the, the nice. zip sweater and suit look, neat and lean. I live in his outfit, right? I'm in I'm in denim with a leather and dirt all under my fingernails. I'm in New York City. I'm in I'm in the big city now. I have to dress up. You yeah, know? get gussied up for it. Yeah, man. <laughs> Uh, I've cleaned up well, Bob. I want to make sure they let me in, right? I got knives in my bag exactly. and I got blocks of steel. So if I look respectable, maybe they'll let me in. How do you, I was going to actually, I was curious about that. So so you live out west, yeah. Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Um, when you travel, traveling with knives, like how does that work? You, you just put them in your, you know, packed bags. But you, so you always have to check kind of, right? Yeah, always. Oh, yeah. yeah. You got to check and you just cross your fingers that they show up at the other end. I have a lot of questions because I feel like I should not be in the same room with you two guys. I am like one of those. <laughs> I am the case study in the American home cook whose knives are just an embarrassment. I just have a hodgepodge selection of random <laughs> knives I've accumulated over the years. I've never sharpened them. It's just embarrassing. And before we sort of ramp up to the 2.0 stuff, basic advice for the home cook. I mean, how many knives do I need? And, and what's the easiest way, Bob, for, you know, to, to take care of my knives? And, and yeah, what, what should my selection be? He, to just get by, I would say you need two knives. You know, all you need a utility knife and a chef's knife. When and you say utility, what does that mean? Oh, it's about a six, five or six inch long mm-hmm. blade. Looks a little bit like a steak knife, a little bit wider. Mm-hmm. Great for peeling the skin off of a pineapple or yep. cutting an apple up where you don't need a huge chef's knife. And you don't really need a huge chef's knife. Like eight inch chef's knife is plenty big for most people. With those two blades, you can pretty much do anything. Now, you, right. You'd take the utility knife over a paring knife? I would. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's more useful. The pairing I tend to grab the utility before before the pairing as well. But it's when just, you say pairing, what 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 do you consider a pairing knife? It's a it's a smaller than the utility. It's usually what like three inches, three inch blade. Yeah. It's your go to every. Like if if you're kind of doing that thumb with the yeah. apple yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. thing, the grandma peel. Yeah, the, the grandma, grandma. We call it the grandma yeah, peel. Yeah, it has a name. For Cooking sure. over the sink, no cutting board. Yeah. That's how my mother cooked. That's how my grandmother cooked. Everything happened with a paring knife. We didn't have a chef's knife. And where where did you grow up and what's what's your background? Just outside of Detroit, uh-huh. uh, German, Irish. Uh-huh. Yeah. And were they were they good cooks? 
my mother was not a good cook. <laughs> no, oh no, my, no, wow. no. I'm is she, sorry. Is she listening? <laughs> she was not a good cook. Um, but she, uh, like, you could kill somebody with one of her pork chops. You know, it, it was basically a boomerang. But um, you know, as she, we, and there were six kids in the family, so she was just trying to get us fed. She didn't yeah, yeah. have a heck of a lot of time to hang out in the kitchen and do some slow cooking. So, all right, so, so I have two. I have my two knives. Um, I kind of think you need a bread knife also, but does that not really count no, as right a bread knife? Yeah, if I was going to go yeah. three blades, yeah. I'd add the bread. All right, so so I, I have my eight-inch chef's knife, basic one, um, uh, utility knife. Um, how? So how do I even know? How, am I sharpening it myself? Am I taking it to a place? How often am I doing that? Like, how do I know this stuff? Well, you you know, you, you cut with a, a sharp knife. Yeah. You know, it's it's just singing through the food. You know it's dangerous. You can feel like I, Singing, I need, I I need like to be, that. yeah, it just zips through a potato or a carrot, whatever. Yeah. And if you pay attention to that over time, it, you'll you'll notice the performance start to drop, and and that's when you need to you know maintain it, bring it up a little bit, you know. But just, how? Okay, so you'd use a steel, a sharpening steel or a ceramic. It's the round thing that comes with the set of knives that everybody has that they don't know what it is used for. Yes, and you see like the chefs in the kitchen going, <laughs> and you're like, oh wow, that guy's. Looks He's cool. cool. Yeah. yeah, he or she is looking pretty cool right now. For me, it was very helpful to understand visually what you're doing when you're honing, because you're not essentially you're not sharpening. Mm -hmm. You're making your knife sharper, yeah. but you're not cutting a new edge, right? Yeah, right. So like when you're honing it, it looks like a little, you know, like the edge is just a, a little pyramid or a little, yeah. uh, you know, a triangle. Yeah, a, a, triangle and a cute point. triangle. And what it does when it gets dull, it just begins to the little edge starts to roll. Mm -hmm. And with the honing, when you run it on it, it it just realigns it it brings it back it. to the yep. starting line right so the of. edge is still there it's just that the metal it has an integrity where it'll bend yeah and then you can just throw it back you know i have one of those at home and 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 i think you know what's the what's the angle that you're supposed to do it at basically i like, suggest 10 to 15 degrees yeah which is a matchbook like a traditional mm. triangular okay. matchbook yeah. if you if you lay that on the table and lay your knife on top of yeah. it that's about a 10 degree bevel Here's a really simple way to do this. Mm -hmm. You need four to six pounds of pressure, and you can check yourself with a baking scale. Oh, wow. So grab the knife by the handle, mm -hmm. place the blade on the scale, look until, you know, press down until you see four to six pounds of pressure. You'll be surprised. Most people are surprised. Like, wow, that's way more pressure than I was yeah. using. Mm -hmm. you, you, if you've been using a steel and not getting results, in other words, not seeing the performance go up, you've probably not been using enough pressure. We're pushing metal around. We're pushing that edge around. So yeah. you need to use some pressure to get it straight. So you start with four to six pounds. You do four or five strokes and then lighten up. So you're doing two to three pounds. And at the end, it's very light, like eight ounces. So you yeah. start heavy and light. Interesting. All right, start heavy and light. So honing it, obviously this depends on how often you cook and how much you're using your knives and you can feel. But then if I'm the average home cook, should I take my knives to get sharpened professionally instead of trying to do it myself? You know, I'd like to encourage people to learn to sharpen. If if and if you're into it, it's not that hard. But you have to learn, though. You have to learn. Yeah. But it's like riding a bike. You know, you practice a little bit. Maybe it takes you a week of focus, and then once you have it, you have it. Yeah, it's and, like building up a consistency is what I find. And like you said, the pressure with friends that I've showed how to sharpen is they're never pushing hard enough. And it's like I started learning how to sharpen. You know, you don't use your your most expensive best knife you use you know one that's a, you know it's a decent you I, mm -hmm. I always found you want to use a knife that has good steel yeah and then just start on that find have like a beater knife that you can really just work on find your rhythm find getting comfortable with it and it's just all about a consi consistent technique is what i found 
All right, so that's for basic home cook, um, sort of what you need and, and upkeep. Um, you, the two of you, Bob, on a very professional level, Brad, on a more sort of hobby pursuit level. Much more hobby. Um, yeah. It, have taken your love of knives to a completely different dimension. And I guess, Bob, with you, like, when and how did that start? Because it's not, it's not the most obvious job, it's, pursuit. It is definitely off the beaten path. Um, I got turned on to knives. So I was working in restaurants, hotels and restaurants. So I had to have a set of knives. And I ran into the same situation, like, how do I sharpen these things? Mm. And I was working the Four Seasons, so it was really high-end kitchen, really talented people. Which city? Uh, Seattle. Yeah, okay. And no one in the kitchen seemed to know how to sharpen their knives. And um, in college at the time, and I'm thinking, I can figure out how this works. It can't be that hard. Well, it took me about three years to really understand it and be able to execute it quickly. And once I could, there was a wonderful feeling of self-reliance. Like, I can take care of my tools. And I started to sharpen other people's knives in the kitchen, and I started making money. And I thought, this is a cool way to make a living. And it's never going away, because your yeah. knife is always going to get dull, and these cats don't seem to be interested in learning how to do it. So I just kept doing it. And I eventually started to go restaurant to restaurant. And the further, you know, the more tools that I handled, um, the more understanding I had of, of what a good tool was and what a bad tool was. Do you remember the first time you held in your hand what you would now consider a real superior knife? I can't remember the exact moment. I mean, right now I'm thinking about the uh, Garmanger chef at the Four Seasons who was Japanese. And he took his knife roll out one time and laid these knives open. They were all traditional Japanese blades. Which, it, is, which is a one-sided right. edge, correct? Yeah, yeah right. asymmetrical grind. And, and they, I was awestruck. I mean, they were truly beautiful things. Did he let you use them at all? No, hell no. no. Absolutely not. No, no. He, I couldn't even stand close to the table. He's like, no, stand away. He didn't need you to sharpen them. No. <laughs> and then, Brad, what about you? When, when did you sort of become enamored of, of knives? You know, I've always liked them. I mean, I've always been using them and then... Uh, just starting just you know people who there was a guy in Greenpoint who introduced me he was making knives you know and he was forging metal and stuff and that just kind of really got me into it and um just you know like you said the key word is it's a tool so like when I really started cooking and and cutting things a lot more and needed to be precise and I mean you know the feeling when you have to a, a tomato is a perfect example yeah. when when you the knife just like almost falls through it it's a, it's a good feeling which is you know? which is the exact opposite of when the to, when the knife just like smushes the yeah. tomato because it won't cut through it and yeah, you're making like, tomatoes oh, or just resist like yeah. you can't go through the tomatoes yeah. like I'm not getting you, you can't cut it, me but you're like how is that possible and yet that <laughs> happens and yeah the skin just sort of like resists. Yeah. So it was probably the first time I cut like something with a, with a really sharp knife. It, you, probably my dad. Uh-huh. Cuz he always had some uh, you know decent knives and he always had he had this little natural whetstone that he got so from So he knew how to sharpen and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he got him. He gets his he's a big pocket knife guy and he gets him razor sharp. Yeah. And he's he had this little stone. It was like 200 years old or something and that he would always be and I just kind of picked it up with him and he really yeah, he showed me how to do it. All right, but it's a, it's a huge step from Buying a knife and knowing how to sharpen it to making a knife. So are you, I don't even know what the, I don't even know what the correct verbiage is. I hate to say, are you forging knife? What are you doing? Like, what do you? No. I see you come in with your own knives, and I'm like, what do you mean you made that? <laughs> well, I'm not making steel. I mean, when I'm sitting here at Bob, I feel yeah. like I'm in Wayne's world. You know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not worthy. But um, you know, I, I'm buying blanks or like vintage. Old, What's a blank? So it's an already shaped, forged, hardened piece of steel. Sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, 
sometimes it's not it'll be unground so mm-hmm. you know the spine will be the same thickness as the edge okay so i'll have to cut an edge well how do you cut an edge on um sanding belts okay like so it's, the, sh- it's the shape of a knife but the but the but the the, sh- the blade is not sharp yet someone did the hard work already yeah and that, now i'm just cutting them down and uh and putting an edge on them and making the handles i started off with woodwork that was mm-hmm. really where i first got into it i really enjoy making the handles and the uh, the softwood sayas, which is like the the Japanese case for them. Oh yeah. So I like they're the, like the little sheath that go over the blade. Yeah, it's itself. made of wood and it slips yeah. in there perfect, and it's great. So you had done woodwork before you got into. Yeah, I was a carpenter guys. for several several years, and uh, I still fool around with it now. And yeah, I just love hands-on stuff. You know, if I'm not doing something, if I have idle hands, I'll, I get in trouble or something. <laughs> I, I my, I'm I'm like one of those Jewish guys who lives in New York City that if my wife if anything needs to get done in the house, she will just hire someone. She won't even. She, I mean, she trusts me to change one of the halogen bulbs in her hallway, but like <laughs> literally, that is the extent of like my getting anything done. So, so then, Bob, like, so explain to us because like uh, you had a great profile on the New Yorker, which talks about the actual 2008, the actual sort of what goes into making the knife from 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 gr- the ground up, which is kind of a crazy, intimidating, scientific, it's totally alchemy crazy. process. Yeah, I'm obsessed with this, though, and I've been obsessed with it for 25 years. So I just have kept going down the rabbit hole. So these days, I'm making my own steel. So I can start with pure iron, and then it, this is just like baking. So on my shelf, I've got tungsten, vanadium, molybdenum, manganese, <laughs> pure iron, and so I'll decide on a certain recipe. So recently I've been trying to recreate what the Japanese are using for their swords. So I have a friend that's a swordsmith in Japan, and I said- You mean like samurai swords? Yeah. He's a fully licensed swordsmith, seven-year apprenticeship. That's amazing. You know, and you got to take a test, and then you get a license, and then you can build swords. So this dude sent me some steel. I forged it out, had it analyzed, and figured out what was in it. And it's pretty simple, clean stuff. And so now I have an induction heater, which is kind of like your stovetop, only mine goes up to 3,000 degrees. I've got a crucible. I put the elements in there that I want. I melt the steel, so I make an ingot right in, you know, it's like making cupcakes, except we're doing it at 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit. So what kind of safety gear are you wearing at this point? Like, what do you, when do you do this? I've got a leather apron on. Uh I've got... uh, you know, when I check on the steel, I t- take the cap off on the crucible. I've got a welding mask on. Okay. What so, about your hands? Gloves, big, gloves. heavy gauntlets. Yeah. Made out of what? Leather. Leather. Yeah. Okay. Leather's leather's the saving grace for something hot. You know, if you if you pick up something hot and it starts to burn the glove, yeah, you, you can, can drop smell it. it you can yeah. see it. You can drop it, and you're still your hands are going to be safe. But you know, wear cotton, leather boots. And so to get to this point, and you are a as a, I read in the New Yorker, you're one of uh, this was a certified master bladesmith. Correct. So you obviously had to train with when you're dealing with metals and yeah. insane temperatures. Yep. Like how long of a process was that so you could do it on your own? Uh it was it was a five year process mm-hmm. to go from being an apprentice to master smith. And there's two tests along the way. So you join as an apprentice and and you're you kind of you can take some weekend classes. You can take a week long class in Arkansas at the American Bladesmith Society. Um, and there's little events that happen around the country where a bunch of guys will get together, s- share secrets for, you know, or techniques over the weekend, and then you take that home and practice and work on it. So after you've been an apprentice for three years, you can test to become a journeyman smith. And the test, you have to forge a 10-inch uh, knife, 10-inch blade, 5-inch handle, so 15 inches overall. 
hand forge from whatever you want, but that knife has to be able to cut through a one inch hemp rope, right? So it's a big fat rope hanging from the ceiling, no weight on the bottom, one swipe, cut the rope. But see, that, all right, that, already that strikes me as impossible. It's so not. it's not even taut. It's just right. hanging. Free hanging. And you, with a knife that you made, right. you just swing it like. And cut the rope. One cut. And that actually works. And hemp fiber is is one of the strongest. I mean, it's it's brutally tough. So I don't, but explain that to me. How is that possible? You got to have it flipping sharp. You got to get the knife really sharp. And some of it's technique. So when you mm-hmm. swing on the rope, you swing down. So you are putting tension on mm. the rope, oh, right? I've no. seen him do it, and it's it's unbelievable. I've got a rope. <laughs> I've got I'm scared. Right I'm scared. We'll, we'll get that on video. All right, later. so here's no. the second part yeah. of the test. Then you have to take the same knife, chop a two-by-four in half twice. So hack, 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 hack. Cut through the two-by-four. Do it again. When you do that, are you just taking wax at yeah. it, or what's the technique? Yeah, yeah. you're chopping it yeah. like you're chopping a tree. Yeah. Chop, chop. Never done that either. <laughs> Cut through that twice, and there can be no damage to the edge whatsoever mm-hmm. because then you have to shave hair off your arm with that area that you cut through the two by four to show that you have, you know. Do you have hairy arms? No, not no. at all. So that, that's the hard part. It's <laughs> yeah, fine. Exactly. The shaving's not bad. But um, so then once there's no damage to the edge of the knife and you shave, then you put the knife in a vise, bend it 90 degrees without it breaking. That I don't understand. I mean, I, the other parts I can't quite believe, but w- what is the why? What's this last to, part for? Uh, you know, the guys that came up with this test wanted to make a test to prove that you really knew how to manipulate the material and control mm-hmm. the heat treatment so that the material has mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of integrity. So they're thinking about making a knife that's so tough that if you went out into the wilderness and got lost and your your life depended on this knife, you could stand on it. You could drive it into a yeah. tree and stand on it if you needed to. You could bang it through some firewood if you needed to and it wouldn't take break. Down, take down a wild boar if a, you had to. Or grizzly bear yeah. is what I was thinking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So going into this test, and how, long, how many years ago was this for you? Uh, nineteen ninety five. And did going in, I assume you would practice on your own. That you're like confident yeah. you're gonna pull it off. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I would do this in my shop. I I knew I could bend it. I could chop. Yeah. No problem. So you've you've launched this very successful career, making these beautiful knives. That if you see them, and for the listener, you should just Google Bob and check out. You'll take take a look at his knives. Brad, you own how many? Do you own? Oh, God. Uh, Bob's. Two, uh, probably about five or six. And can you explain to the listener what what differentiates his knives from all the other knives out there? Just quality. They're just made this fantastic steel. I mean, a lot of people, they see like the Damascus look and the folded layers. And some so people, that's that sort of like striation. Yeah, like blade, those you know? different layers. And they're folded layers, correct? Of different yeah. steels folded and stretched and folded. Um, and some people, I mean, some knives, they do, they etch that on and they kind uh-huh. of fake it as like a. Yeah, yeah. A, but it's just quality steel. It gets. Unbelievably sharp. Um, one of my favorite things about Bob's knives is the shape of his of his of his chef knife. It, it the way it fits your hand is just like like a pair of jeans that mm-hmm. like you've had forever. And um, the handle's perfect. You know, it's it's big, and the blade, the shape has got a nice rock to it, and it's got a nice fat. A rock being the curve curvature, right? So you can like it. it like I pull cut a lot, and it uh-huh. even works great for that. It's just, yeah. I mean, the key word is it's a tool, and it's yeah. it's it's. My favorite knife. It's my go-to. That and Chinese Chinese cleaver. Yeah. So, Bob, on your basic eight-inch chef's knife that you make, A, how much does it cost? B, how much does it weigh? Oh, good question. The second one I can answer first uh, weighs about 200 grams. So okay. 10, 11 ounces. 11 ounces. Something okay. like that. So not 
terribly heavy. No. No. Here's one. You want to oh, feel yeah, it? Yeah, sure. Um, this is a blade that I've licensed these designs to Zwilling J.A. Henkel. Mm-hmm. So these guys manufacture that design in Japan. Oh, okay. But it's a it's a really nice replica of of my knives. Carbon steel made in Japan, it says on the blade. Yep. Uh, Kramer is willing. Kramer buys willing with this beautiful handle. And like, so, all right. So, what does this guy retail for? I think that's two seventy five. Okay. And then if I if I got a, a Bob knife of this same one hand done by you, what would what would I be paying for that? Thirteen hundred dollars. Thirteen hundred. Wow. I better make some tasty dinner with that. Yeah. And what would you say the 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 biggest differences between the two, between the manufactured the, what, knife, yeah, what I have and, and what, what you would make. So you yeah. know, I'm making them one at a time. These guys are making them hundreds mm-hmm. at a time. I'm able to really streamline that handle and also customize it if you mm-hmm. wanted something a little mm-hmm. bit different. But as far as the shape goes, you know, the shape came out of my head. So it's very intimate to me. These guys are making it in a factory. These are really good. Yeah. These are really close. But there are very subtle differences, differences. between the taper but, and the grind. But for like, like I said, for, for, for me, the average home cook who's – This is perfect. That's good. It's like yeah. that's oh, going to do what I got to do. Yeah. 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 This is it's perfect. a very the, – the blade itself – is very deep. Deep. Explain that. It's, it's, yeah, it's a. It looks substantial. Yep. So as a as a sharpener, as a technician, as a guy who saw and sharpened knives every week for restaurants, they wear down. Every time you sharpen your knife, you lose something. There's no free lunch there. And so some of these manufacturers are manufacturing a knife that's just the right depth when you buy it. And after you sharpen it a few times, it starts to get narrower and narrower. Mm-hmm. And so when you're cutting on a cutting board, you start banging your knuckles onto the board. Mm. Then you have to cut what I would call off the board. So your hand has to be off the cutting board yep. and just the blade is on the board. Well, I kind of make a mess when I'm yeah. chopping, right? The food's moving out in yeah. all different directions. I don't want to have to keep scooping it onto the board. So if the blade is nice and deep, I can be in the middle of the cutting board, chop, 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 food goes everywhere, yeah. it's fine. How how are your knife skills as a cook? Pretty good. Yeah, Pretty good. I mean, after working ten years in a restaurant, I feel comfortable. Yeah. Now, Bob, I assume do you do you believe in that superstition slash tradition that if you give someone a knife as a gift, they need to give you money back? I don't. I'm not really. I'm a scientific guy. I'm not terribly superstitious. <laughs> so I think I've given a bunch of knives away and completely forgotten about the coin. Yeah, thing. Brad, that, you know that thing. If right? that was true, I'd have no friends. Because <laughs> the thing is, like, so it, it's bad luck. Because if you give someone a knife as it a gift, severs. it's, like a, it's, it's yeah, severs, it severs the relationship. Okay, so you they have to quote unquote buy, buy a knife from you. I gave one to a good friend of mine for that I made from a. Um, an old French sabatier, old blank unworked uh-huh. that I ground down. Beautiful slicing knife. And uh, I gave that to him for his wedding. And he loved it. And they're still married and we're still friends. So, All right. We'll tell you what, guys. If if you give me a knife, either of you, <laughs> I will give you like 10 cents each. Yeah, all right. Bob moves across the table. You owe me a dime. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming by. My pleasure. Uh, and Brad, always a pleasure. Anytime. Thanks, guys. Marissa Ross, you're 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 there. You're there in California, right? Yes, I'm here in Los Angeles, California. <laughs> it's about two thirty-six p.m. over there, five thirty over here. What I, first question? What what are you drinking right now? 
Well, I'm just drinking LaCroix right now, um, trying to, you know, make sure I'm really sharp and not slurring um, on the food cast. But um, I'm sure I'll get into a gamay as soon as this is over to calm my nerves and <laughs> that sort of thing. Got it. So you got the LaCroix sparkling water. But if you, for any of you uh, listeners out there, if you follow Marissa on the on the social media, what's your Instagram handle, Marissa? It's Marissa A. Ross. The image I get is that it could be like two in the afternoon or two in the morning and you're always walking around basically in shorts and a t-shirt with a <laughs> bottle of wine. Is that fair? Yeah. That's, I mean, that's pretty accurate on a regular day. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you're a new wine writer here at Bon Appetit. We're very excited to have you. Unfiltered is the name of your column, which I think, I think that's a kind of a cool name. I didn't come up with it, but are you, are you digging that name? Yeah, I love it because I think that my style of writing is very unfiltered in a lot of ways, and uh, that's also how I like my wine. So, works out. Wait, all right, that might be a problem. So, are you like unfiltered natural wine gal at heart? I am. I really? am. I, I didn't. I didn't start out that way, but now, if usually when I'm on Instagram drinking at two o'clock in the afternoon, it's probably a natural wine. <laughs> We might have to reconsider your contract, actually. <laughs> I, no, no, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna change your mind on it. They're uh, not all, they're not all like barnyard bombs anymore. There's plenty of natural wines that taste more like regular wines. I'm just gonna have to get you some good ones, and you know. Yeah, I don't know, but it's it just the wine. It, it, you know, it has that cloudy sort of look, and I feel like the that cloudiness translates to taste like time, taste in that it's not as exacting sometimes. I don't know, but maybe I'm wrong. I but can, that's, I can definitely um, understand that sentiment. Um, that that could be true. Did you say? Did you, you say? That. Did you say sentiment or sediment? I said sentiment, but oh, that was pretty funny. Wine <laughs> joke. Come on, give me I some. Know. All right. So yeah. So you've already written some pieces for bonappetit.com. So if listeners want to go check out Marissa A. Ross's writing, you can search <laughs> for it on bonappetit.com. And well, two. This is a two-part question because I had a little Twitter thing with you the other day about this. <laughs> My first question is. You wrote a piece for bonapetit.com on sulfites in wine and, and whether or not you should be worried about them. I tweeted at you about how my wife won't let me drink red wine generally because then the sulfites make me snore when I go to sleep and she kicks me out of bed. Then you told me that, no, 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 it's not the sulfites. It's the histamines in the wine. And I got totally confused. So can we talk about this for a second? Yeah, I don't think that you specifically told me that it was snoring on Twitter, but that's really interesting. <laughs> um, but I still think I, I probably that, said congested or something. Yeah, congested. I still think that it's probably the histamines, though. So there's histamines in wine just in general. Like, you're not going to be able to get rid of them. And I don't – in my research, I haven't found a way that they can even evaluate how many histamines are in wine. But that's generally what causes people to, you know, be congested or have headaches or – um, you know, for me, like sometimes I get a little sneezy. I have really, really bad allergies anyways. Mm -hmm. So to add histamines to it is not always the best idea. <laughs> and they, they are a natural occurrence with, within grapes is what you're saying. Yeah. Do you, yeah. But are they, you can do about it, but that's usually what the problem is. It's not the sulfites. And are so. they, are they more pronounced, uh, to your knowledge with red wine than with white wine? Yes. So you used to be Mindy Kaling's assistant. True or false? True. I was actually I was her assistant uh, for four years. Four I actually, years. I, mean, I quit. I quit last May. So it hasn't even been a year since I stopped being her assistant. Holy cow! That's a long yeah. time. That's impressive. She must be a good boss. Yeah, she's great. I love her. Um, I was I was pursuing comedy writing um, and performing, so she was perfect to work for. And what's her what are, what's her wine of choice? What's you know? Tell us about that. 
She's not a big wine drinker. Really? Um, I've only drank wine with her maybe once. She's more of a vodka soda gal, and Ooh. we definitely have gotten into those a couple times. I can respect um, that. Because that's, that's my drink of choice if I'm not drinking wine. You didn't, so. try, to, you didn't try to convert her to the, to the wine side? I tried, but, I mean, she's so busy, you know, that she's, she's crazy busy. So it wasn't like, you know, she doesn't really have time to be hanging out with me and drinking wine at night. Like, she's, yeah. you know, busy running an empire. Big shot. <laughs> I find, all right, so I, much to the chagrin of Andrew Knowlton, our uh, restaurant deputy editor guy, um, I am a vodka soda guy, um, which he just scoffs at <laughs> because it's kind of like a tasteless, neutral, like, just like it's like a, a void of a cocktail. But yeah. I, I do think I feel like I get and let me get your opinion on this. Like I feel that a vodka soda hangover is not as rough as like a red wine hangover. Well, I, I don't know. I, I mean, basically, when I became a professional wine writer on accident, um, my drinking habits just sort of changed. Like instead of drinking at night, I most, now I drink during the day. See, it I sounds that, crazy. No, but, but actually that makes a huge difference. I think that a lot of, for me, like hangovers has to do with like sugar content. Like yes. if I drink like a pitcher of margaritas, yes. I'm going to be hungover. Yeah, not good. Um, if I drink vodka soda, not so much. And if I drink like natural red wines, I'm not really hungover either. But most of like the red wines that people are drinking that then they complain about red wine hangovers, those tend to have a lot more sugar in them than people know about yeah i often like if i'm drinking rosé at night with my wife at dinner i have after dinner i have no desire for dessert because i feel like the wine i don't know if it just might taste bud wise i feel like i've gotten enough sugar over the course of the meal um, totally you know well let's also let's also talk about in terms of hangovers and stuff um low <laughs> alcohol wines which are sort of after years of big california reds and you know n- you know trophy yeah. wines and stuff at 16 percent alcohol um i think a lot of these lighter red wines which you you're writing about in the upcoming june issue of bon appetit and also white wines like for instance the other day I was making dinner at home and I stopped by the wine store and I wanted a, just something easy to drink that was white to go with some sort of vegetable pasta thingamajig I was making. And I grabbed a bottle of Vino Verde, which is, oh, it, it's, it. it's really good, but it's almost too easy to drink. Like that's only like what, 8% alcohol or so? Yeah, or? it's super low alcohol. And with that slight effervescence, mm, that yes. is like, that's my, one of my favorite white wines. It's so easy to drink. And Vino Verde uh, for us, so it's, Portuguese originally or Spanish? Yeah, it's a Portuguese white wine. And it's also, it's lower in alcohol and it's also very affordable, right? Yeah, it's super affordable. You can, like, one of my favorite ones is actually at Whole Foods and I think it's like $8. Wow. And it's called Orlana, Orlana Vino Verde, and it has a beautiful mint teal uh, label and it's great. And it's I could a, drink that forever. It's a it's a good it's a good day a good day drinking wine. Oh yeah, like if it's like if if I'm getting together on a Saturday with some people, Vino Verde is definitely where I want to be at. Because also too, when you're entertaining, especially with people, you know, day drinking, you don't want to be busting out like mad expensive wines because people don't understand yeah. <laughs> that they're drinking like a fifty dollar bottle of wine. So if you can go and buy a bunch of $10 Vino Verdes, everyone's super happy. And also you're not super broke. Are you, are you um, snobby at all about glassware? Like if you're drinking on a Saturday afternoon at someone's pool in LA, cause everyone has a pool in LA. I've heard. Like, I wh- wish everyone had what? a pool in LA, then I would have a pool. <laughs> Will you drink out of one of those like plastic wine glasses or are you like, no, no, I, I at least got to stick with the glass. 
I mean, I definitely prefer glass. I'm not, I'm not partial to any particular glass. Like I don't, you know, if you came to my house right now, I just have like a set of standard glasses because it's too hard to like have all the different ones. So I'm not, I mean, I would prefer not plastic. I would prefer glass. But if I'm by the pool, you know, safety first. I've got to respect the pool rules. When you're at home, though, what is your standard go-to wine glass that you think is all-purpose? I use the Crate and Barrel Natty red wine glass. Um, Did you say Natty? For everything. Yeah, the Natty. Um, and I like it because it's a little bit bigger than some of the other standard glasses, but it's not too big. And they're really, it's it's just really nice having something that you know you can always replace. Like, I, I thought once upon a time that when I got a little older that my friends would stop breaking all my stuff, no, but that no. hasn't happened. Yeah. So it's great to, like, know that they always have them. It's like, you know, they're like 2 or $3 a piece, so I can always kind of replace them. And I actually keep a whole other set in my office. And then mm. as they break throughout the year, I just replace them. Yeah, so they'll always match. You're never, you're never going to have that mismatch thing. Yeah, no, I, I tried to play that game once when I was like, I'm going to take wine seriously, like a couple of years ago. And then I ended up with like one champagne flute and like two, <laughs> two Pinot Noir glasses and then like three cab glasses and one Chardonnay glass. Okay. And that just... All right, what, I, I want to dislike these things, but I kind of weirdly love them. But the stemless wine glass, is that just like a total like thing from 10 years ago? Is it Or is it okay that I have them in my cupboard? No, that's fine. I have them in my cupboard too. Just don't put white wine in them. Wine, oh, because your hand warms the white wine? Yeah. Oh. I, think the, I don't think that people think about that, but that's why you need stems for white wine so you keep it nice and cool. My whole thing with wine is like whatever you want to do to enjoy it is fine by me. You know, I, I think that there's been, for so long, there's been all these, like, weird rules and um, kind of just this, like, I don't know, you know, it, it was like a regime of, like, how you had to enjoy wine, where I'm like, you know, if you want it in a, if you want it in a solo cup, that's fine by me. I mean, I yeah. don't want it that way, but whatever you got to do to enjoy your wine, that's but, totally chill. But you have drunk it that way before. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, did, <laughs> I did, like, live through my early 20s drinking a lot of Charles Shaw out of solo cups, for All right. sure. So you're, what, how old are you? You're, like, late 30, 20, late 20s right now? I have no I, idea. I just turned 30. All right. Mazel tov. <laughs> um, so you went, how did you go from being aspiring comedian slash Mindy Kellen's assistant to wine writer professional? Um, yeah, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of crazy because I, I moved to L.A. to pr- pursue comedy writing. And then um, I was really, really broke. I had like $400 when I moved to L.A. to my name, and I started drinking a lot of two-buck chuck. Like that was the only thing I could afford. And it sort of oddly became a part of my writing, and I, it kind of accidentally became like my shtick. Like everyone knew me as like the wino, um, the cheap wino. Like I drink a lot of like all under $10 wines, like but, really horrible wines. But this was when you were aspiring as a comedian. You were like the wino yeah. comedian. Yeah, yeah. So, and then for, and then I started, I just really liked wine and I started um, a web series about wine, but it was like a comedic thing. It wasn't, it wasn't meant to be serious. And then as that progressed, I just sort of realized I, I really liked wine and I, and I just had this hobby of, you know, drinking wine and researching it. And I started a blog and I just wrote about it sort of without thinking anyone would ever care about it or it would become anything. And then um, that just sort of weirdly took off. And then now here I am. <laughs> and then, so how did, how did you break the news to Mindy? that, I, Dude, I, I'm, I, I got a bail. I'm too famous now. <laughs> that definitely wasn't the wording I used. <laughs> I, I was just sort of like, listen, 
I'm going to go sell this wine book that I never in a million years thought I was going to write. So I got to go. And she was like, I understand. She was very chill about it. Yeah. So you have a book called Unwind, W-I-N-E-D, coming out in 2017? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Supposed to be coming out for rosé season. What's the elevator pitch on Unwind? Um, it's the guide to drinking, living, and keeping it together, basically. Yeah. Nice. But before we go, we got to do our lightning round with you. Hope, oh, that's o- hope that's okay. I'm so nervous. Let's do it. Um, okay. Boxed wine or canned wine? Ooh. Oh, man. I'm going to go with boxed wine. Right. But the reason I'm choosing boxed wines is because I don't like the way if you put the alum- like if you put an aluminum can up to your face to drink it you you just get the smell of aluminum yeah. and it ruins the taste of the wine for me or the yeah. flavor of the wine yeah all right so i feel like box wine is still a better way to go pet nat or grower champagne oh pet nat for sure oh this i like this one willamette valley or loire valley loire forever wow Dude, my cousin Tony is from Oregon. He's going to be bummed to hear that. He's just I'm sorry. The, the Willamette. Willamette has a lot of really great stuff going on right now, and I think that they actually are doing a lot of stuff that's very styled like the Loire, but I just that's that's like my weak my weak zone. Like well, I will always drink Loire. And Loire is the home of the Sancerre, for instance, and all that Sauvignon Blanc, but there's also some good light red wines from Loire, correct? Yeah, there's, so there's like Pinot de Nice and um, a lot of Gamay. In-N-Out or Apple Pan? I'm going to have to go in and out. How often do you go in and out? That's the question. That's the thing. I don't get to go that often because I live in Silver Lake and there's none around. Like mm. It takes like 20 minutes for me just to get to in and out yeah. So I always eat it when I go home to Which... my, to my like when I'm driving on the freeway. If oh. I have to be on the freeway for longer than an hour, I'm going to in and out Okay. All right. Poolside or beachside? Oh. That's, <sighs> that's like, man. I'm going to go poolside. All you right. can drink more there. Yeah, exactly. You don't allow alcohol on the beaches yeah. here. Yeah, or you don't want getting sand in it and stuff. I hate that. Uh, yeah. This is a good restaurant question, Every L.A. Justa or Squirrel? Oh, man. <sighs> I'm going to go with Squirrel. Yeah, because well, also Justa is in Venice Beach, um, Travis yeah, Lights, restaurant, a, which is so far from you. The main, the main reason. I'm not into driving to the west side. <laughs> Breakfast taco or carnitas burrito? Carnitas burrito forever. Yes, for the win. Yeah. Uh, oh, this is an interesting one. Stand up or sketch comedy? Oh, I guess it depends. It depends on if I'm watching it or performing it. But I'm gonna go with stand up. All right. I think we already. I'm gonna switch up our last question. I guess we kind of already know the answer. But instead of butter or olive oil, I'm gonna ask you red or white. Red and olive oil. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Marissa Ross, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast has been brought to you by Val Cushing and Carrie Polis, with editing by Mitra Kaboli and additional help from Christina Che and Lily Sherman. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Greedies. We have new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to tell us anything about this or any episode, please email us at bonapetitfoodcast at gmail.com.